This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Episodes of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast may contain strong language and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. After being found not guilty in the criminal trial, O.J. Simpson is found liable in the deaths of Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman in civil court. O.J. Simpson left the courthouse last night, betraying no emotion, branded a killer, despite having been found not guilty of the murders just 16 months ago. For the anguished families of Ronald Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson, this was justice. Our family is grateful for a verdict of responsibility, which is all we ever wanted. And we have it, thank God. Netflix is founded by Mark Randolph and Reese Hastings in California. It started out as a DVD rental service. There's a better way to rent movies. As many as you want for only $17.99 a month and no late fees. Go to Netflix.com, make a list of the movies you want to see, and in about one business day, you'll get three DVDs. Keep them as long as you want, without late fees. Then when you're done, look, prepaid envelopes. Return one, and they'll send you another movie from your list. It's easy. Netflix. All the movies you want, only $17.99. In perhaps one of the most famous events in this year, Diana, Princess of Wales, was killed in a car crash in Paris, France. She was 36 years old. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm Jim Clancy at the CNN Center. Britain's Princess Diana has been killed in a car crash in Paris. Her companion, Dodi Al-Fayed, was also killed in the crash along with the driver of the car. We get more now from CNN Siobhan Darrell. The British public woke up to tragic news Sunday morning. Their beloved Princess Diana is dead after her car crash in Paris late Saturday night. 
you don't believe it's true. And the year was 1997. Many will argue that June is one of the best months in Minnesota, one of the best months throughout the year. Everything's greened up after the long winter months. Everybody's tired of winter. They're ready for spring. The flowers are in bloom and the temperatures are wonderful. Highs usually in the mid-70s with lows around the mid-50s. Chisago County is located just northeast of the Twin Cities in the east central part of Minnesota. Its east border is the St. Croix River on the Minnesota-Wisconsin border. Bruce Peterson was a 28-year-old deputy for Chisago County back then. Chisago County is 444 square miles. Southern half of Chisago County is the most populated. So you kind of get the best of both worlds where, you know, Highway 8 is, you know, comes out of Forest Lake and goes to Taylor's Falls and our most populated strip still with some farmlands around it. And then the northern half of the county, once you get up past North Branch, North Branch is our last like real big city, um, it's pretty rural, you know, especially you get out Fish Lake Township where it's real rural up there. Chisago County has a diverse economy. It's home to several manufacturing companies, including the Anderson Corporation, a major producer of windows and doors. Agriculture is also an essential part of the local economy with crops such as corn, soybeans, and wheat grown in the county. Tourism is also an important industry in this county. Chisago County has many lakes and wetlands. It has over 100 lakes, actually, the largest being North and South Center Lakes, Green Lake, and Chisago Lake. The Minnesota State Patrol a division of the Minnesota Department of Public Safety is the primary state patrol agency in Minnesota. Their officers are referred to as state troopers, and while they have full arrest powers throughout the state, their primary function is traffic safety and vehicle law enforcement. Originally called the Minnesota Highway Patrol, the agency was created in 1929 and after a reorganization back in the early 70s, the name was officially changed to the Minnesota State Patrol. Back then, it was started with a chief and eight appointed officers. Today, the State Patrol is headquartered in St. Paul. There are 11 patrol districts throughout the state. Each district office led by a captain, and it's staffed with troopers and investigators along with communications and support staff. Minnesota is the only state agency with maroon squad cars. Maroon and gold being the color of the University of Minnesota's Golden Gophers. After struggling with different variations of maroon in the past, Ford now mixes a custom maroon paint specific for Minnesota squad cars only. So if you see pictures of them, they're the only ones like that in the whole country with that color. They've since added some Dodge squad cars, some chargers, and you'll notice they're a little bit different color. They're painted what Dodge calls a red octane pearl, which is Dodge's factory color that's the closest match to the Ford maroon that's preferred by the State Patrol. Another unique design with the Minnesota State Patrol is the white door. From 1960 to 1991, all the State Patrol squads in Minnesota were maroon with white front doors. The idea behind the white door was to make it easy to rapidly identify these vehicles from a distance. Now, they went away from the white door scheme back in 1991, and then they returned to the retro graphics design in 2008, calling it the white door paint scheme. 
there are just under 600 licensed troopers in the state of Minnesota. Back in 1997, one of those troopers was Timothy Joseph Bowe. Tim was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota in July of 1960 to Anne and Don Bowe and was one of eight siblings. He grew up playing varsity football, number 22, and hockey as well before graduating from Columbia Heights High School in 1978. He then attended Alexandria Technical College and graduated three years later with his degree in law enforcement. While in college, he met Denise Marie Larson, who he later would marry in September of 1982. I guess what drew me to Tim was just his smile and just his, you know, his beautiful blue eyes, I guess, and just his demeanor. You know, he just had such a caring, loving heart. Um, and not to say he would have your back no matter what. And I just think that um, I could see that in him, is that just a caring person. And we just, you know, became best friends, but soulmates. Denise explained that literally the day after their wedding, Tim went to the State Patrol Training Academy. You know, we thought, well, we'll just go ahead and, and plan our wedding and everything because we didn't know if he was going to be accepted or not. He accepted, so we thought, well, we'll just go ahead with the plans. So the very next day, after we got married, he went to the Training Academy. It was one of those things where, you know, you're all with, a, you know, all his other candidates there. And, you know, they're going around asking, well, how long have you been married? How long? And we're just like, please don't. I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, please don't ask me. I mean, less than 24 hours. I mean, we'd, he'd never hear the end of it. <laughs> Denise and Tim decided to spend a few years together before starting their family. We were married for eight years before we started our family. It was, yeah, a long time that we just enjoyed just being together getting to know each other, spending time together. Obviously, with law enforcement, you know, you have a different schedule, and, and I work a different schedule, and just spending that time together and doing things together. And he loved to hunt and fish and always, you know, allowed him to take that time with his friends. So, yeah, we started a family after being married for eight years. And when we started our family, we were both very excited but yet nervous, you know, starting a new chapter in our life. And I guess the biggest surprise was we didn't know we were having twins until the date of delivery. That is still a story I know. People are like, how can that happen? I'm like, well, we never had ultrasounds back then. They just said, you know, everything's going well. And Tim ended up taking me to the hospital because I was in labor, and we delivered Alana, and the doctor said, hey, there's another baby coming, and Tim was actually working at the time, so he called dispatch to let him know we had our baby girl, and he had to call him back like 10 minutes later and say, we have, we have another baby girl, so that was quite a surprise. So, you know, when you're preparing for one, but end up with it was just like we felt like you were in a whirlwind, but we knew we could get through this together. So, <laughs> Tim was family-oriented. He was committed to his family, to his marriage, and being a father. And he was able to balance it with his demanding career. 
until they realized one of the twins, Allison, was not developing like her sister. Kim would just hold them both and, you know, they were pretty little under, well, they're probably about four pounds each. He just, you know, stuck them in his big arms and just would go, I mean, this is just a miracle. He was just so excited to be a dad. And um, it was probably about six weeks later when we found out that Allison was not growing. There were different things. So we, you know, took her to um, the clinic, doctors, and she had a liver disease. And we ended up where she had to be on a liver transplant list. She experienced two liver transplants. And unfortunately, you know, she passed away after her second one. She was two and a half, two and a half years old. So it was, you know, very stressful, especially for Tim, you know, being out on the road patrolling, wearing a pager. You know, at that time, you wore pagers if you were going to be on the transplant list. So that was kind of around the time where he decided, I think, to stay out, go off the patrol and then he worked. Um, the governor detail. One of Tim's best friends on the patrol was retired Lieutenant Dan Lewis. Timmy lost a daughter before he died and Allison was sick in the hospital and Timmy took a transfer to go to work at the Capitol, to work in the mansion, the governor's mansion. And the reason he did that was to be closer to the hospital in case he was needed. And he sacrificed all he could because that worked better for him if he needed to get there. He was close because of the she was in Children's in St. Paul and he was able to literally right there's the capital. So he was able to, to, to get there if need be. And, you know, I can remember, I mean, I just, the man didn't sleep. He took care of Denise, Solana, Colin, and then Allison at the hospital. During their careers, Tim and Dan would help start the Minnesota State Patrol's first Special Response Team, or SRT. I got to um, obviously know um, Timmy before um, we were on the team. We taught um, defensive tactics together, um, which led into a, uh, a lot of our defensive tactics um, members and our firearms guys um, moving on to the when we started the State Patrol Special Response Team in 1992. So every single third Thursday of the month, you spent the day or a week at Ripley, and that's when you know you really got to to meet your team members and and Timmy stood out and he always did me I mean he was big strong ripped just model um, I mean you know just one of those guys you, you put the uniform on him and he's gonna look good and he's gonna make it happen and you know as one of those guys you'd follow anywhere you know where I really grew super close to Timmy was in 96 when our special response team was assigned to Minneapolis and we spent our time in the third precinct for three months together and we spent every waking minute together. You know, we would go up there to Minneapolis and it was busy and we were swamped and we'd go up there and do our job and, and uh, the state patrol had bought us bag phones. Remember the first cell phones, the big Motorola bag phones. And I remember him handing out the, the bag phones and looking right at us and saying, now listen, minimal minutes, these are expensive. And I'm telling you, the time we'd leave the third precinct, Timmy lived in the North Metro. I lived in Red Wing. We would talk the entire way home. And then we would sign on the next day and we'd talk all the way into the third precinct on those phones. And it was amazing because that's when I got to know Timmy more the the amazing dad, the amazing husband, the really truly amazing friend of so many of the people that he still knows from Columbia Heights. And, 
and that crew of people. It's just an amazing man. It was June 6th, 1997. Well, he started work at 2 in the afternoon. So I remember we had a pool in the backyard, so he always liked to just go for a swim. And then, you know, we just sat there, I remember, and just talking in the backyard with Alana's last day of school. She was in kindergarten. So it was, you know, one of those things where he was kind of sad that he had to go to work and not see her get off the bus. Um, but looking forward to the summer starting, because obviously in June it was going to school and plans for summer plans. So And, and then he um, left for work, just kind of a normal day, you know, like, uh, you know, see you when you get home. Tim started his shift on Friday, continuing an investigation into an East Bethel traffic crash that killed two students from St. Francis High School. He knew the families, and he knew some of the kids would need someone to talk to, someone to share their pain with, and he felt he could help make them comfortable. And he was scheduled to finish his shift that day at 2 a.m. Chris Hendricks was a deputy with Chisago County. Most of our calls are, you know, dog parties, driving complaints, barking dogs, occasional burglaries in the area, police thefts, burglaries, a few stolen vehicles now and again. Um, Assault, you know, bar fights, because there's several bars in Chisago County. Domestic, um, but nothing really violent. While this area was home to many, it was a popular destination area for weekend getaways from the cities. So there would be a considerable number of people just coming up from, like, the Twin Cities area. Cabins, friends with cabins on the lake, uh, excellent fishing lakes around. Um, a few resorts where people would uh, camp at and basically spend like weekend, holiday weekend, being on the lake in the area. It was a warm Friday evening in June, and Chris was also working that night for the Chisago County Sheriff's Office. So at the time, Chisago County was always divided basically in half. Our county is 450 square miles, roughly. So they would kind of divide the county in half to a north end and a south end. And I was actually assigned on a north end. 40-year-old Jackie Steele was hanging out at home that day. Her husband, Virgil, was a truck driver, and he was over the road. Jackie had stayed behind to help her mother with medical treatments. Their home was at 2780 Crescent Road, which is a dead-end road northwest of Horseshoe Lake in rural Chisago County. It was a Friday night, and Jackie received a call from her 24-year-old son, Jason. Jason now was living in Minneapolis, and he was hanging out with a couple of friends. He called Jackie to see if she felt like company that night. Jackie told Jason, come on up. She said they could go fishing, they could watch videos or play games, whatever they wanted to do. Jason arrived shortly after 6.30 p.m. that night with his friends, 24-year-old Jason Liebel and 25-year-old Joseph Lindstrom. With two Jasons in this story, we'll refer to Jackie's son as Jason and his friend as J.L. Jason and J.L. grew up together. They'd been friends since high school, and J.L. was staying at Jason's place that weekend. Joe Lindstrom, who showed up at their place that day, was someone that Jason had known for a few years. Now, Lindstrom had apparently had some drug dealings with someone in Minnesota that he owed money to. This issue caused him to run to Arizona for two to three months prior to this evening in hiding, essentially. He'd been living in Arizona. According to JL, while driving north to Jackie's, the three men smoked a couple of bowls of marijuana and they ate a few mushroom caps. Now, certain species of mushrooms or fungi contain hallucinogenic properties and they're eaten or consumed in tea or sold in capsules. 
Allegedly, these three were already high when they got to Jackie's, and then they continued to smoke marijuana while watching Star Trek The First Contact. As they got to the end of the movie, JL indicated in his statement to investigators that he started to get a little bit concerned about Joe. He said Joe seemed to be having a good time in the beginning of the evening, but then he started to get paranoid. He was asking where he was, asking where his family was, indications that he was starting to have a bad trip or hallucinate. Joe allegedly had been the one that provided the mushrooms, and according to the guys, he was experienced with them. JL wasn't sure if he'd eaten more mushrooms at Jackie's or not. After the movie, they started playing Scrabble, and Joe seemed to be getting more and more worked up. Joe now wanted to go home. It was Joe's car that they drove to Jackie's. Now, nobody there felt like he was in any condition to drive, so they told him he couldn't leave, and they told him that his family was fine. They even called one of his cousins to have him talk to Joe to try and calm him down. At one point, Jason decided to walk outside with Joe to try and get him to calm down and get some fresh air. A short time later, Jackie took her dogs outside by the picnic table, and JL was standing up on the deck having a cigarette. Jason was doing everything he could to get Joe to calm down. He was trying to convince Joe, who wanted to get in his car and leave, that he was in no condition to leave, that he could hurt himself or hurt others. At that time, they didn't know if Joe had done any more mushrooms or not. They had smoked more marijuana after they got to Jackie's. Jackie also admitted she provided some, but she said she wasn't sure if it was just the marijuana, and she said hers wasn't laced. She thought Joe had had maybe three to four joints while he was there. They also didn't know that Joe was armed with a handgun. Both Jason and JL knew Joe had two guns with him when they drove to Jackie's, but Jason told Joe to leave the guns in the car. He knew the guns would make his mom nervous. Joe had a 40 caliber handgun and a smaller 22 caliber handgun. Unbeknownst to them, Joe had the 22 in a holster in his belt. Joe then wanted to talk to Jackie. Jason walked him to the front of the house, but found the door was locked. So they walked around the house and back towards the picnic table where they found Jackie with her dogs. A few seconds later, without warning, Joe pulled the gun out of his holster, pointed it at Jason, and he pulled the trigger. The bullet struck Jason in his chest. He said it felt like someone punched him in the chest. Jason said, my God, Joe, you've shot me. Joe then turned to Jackie and he pulled the trigger again. After seeing Joe shoot at his mother, Jason, who was still on his feet, started running towards Joe to stop him. But as he did, Joe started shooting at him again. Jason then turned and ran up the stairs to the deck. Joe was still shooting, one shot breaking the glass. JL was at the top of the stairs. He grabbed Jason and he pulled him into the house. Jackie was sure Joe would kill her if he thought she was still alive. So after he shot at her, she went down to the ground and laid there with her dogs, not moving. Then things got quiet. That's when Jackie got up. She screamed, call 911. She grabbed her dogs and she ran for the basement door, slammed it and locked it. She then ran upstairs to check on Jason. Joe walked back to the front of the house and then he sat in his car. He had his hand over the steering wheel. His door was open and one leg was sticking outside the car. They watched Joe reload his gun and continued to shoot randomly. 
Inside, Jason was using his fingers to plug the hole in his chest from where he was shot. He was also struggling to breathe. The bullet had collapsed one of his lungs. For a Friday night, things had been pretty quiet in Chisago County. Bruce was working 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. as the South Car that night. And he actually wasn't feeling very good and was going to go home early. I was sitting at uh, Casey's Gas Station in Taylor's Falls. That's on the corner of Highway 95 and Highway 8. And I was, I was chatting with Sergeant Showdown. <laughs> and I'm just like, Sarge, I just, I'm just not really feeling that good right now. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, mean, I think I just got to go home and just go to bed or something, you know. And, and he's like, all right. So we were chit-chatting, and the call came out for the shots fired up in Crescent, which Taylor's Falls, the south end of our county, and that's kind of like the northwest area, you know, so it's quite a ways away. And, I, and I'm like, hey, Steve, you want me to go with you? And we always called him Uncle Steve, you know. We were, we were a tight, tight-knit group, you know. So Steve's like, you know, here's the deal. You know, and, and the shots fired call, I mean, you, you get those enough where Steve's, I'm like, you want me to go with you? And he's like, nah, just can you hang out, though, before you go home? We'll, you know, we'll clear this up, and, and then you can go home. At approximately 11.47 p.m., dispatch advised deputies they were needed for a shooting call. Senator North 100, report of a man with a gun in here. 2780 Crescent Road. 2780 Crescent Road. As dispatch provided more information, Chris and Bruce knew they needed to respond quickly. The call came out from our dispatcher of two individuals that had been shot at Fish Lake Township. One person was shot in the chest, the other one in the head, and the suspect was still at the residence as they were gathering information. Chris had just arrested someone in the city of North Branch in the west central part of the county on an out-of-county warrant, and he was transporting him to jail when the call came out. Senator City responding in at 1062. The party is sitting in his car, firing random shots, reloading, and firing. Due to the severity of the call, Chris unarrested the man, let him out of the squad, and then he went en route to the call, which was about 10 miles north of this location. Bruce, being one of the South Cars that night, pulled out his plat book, which is a basic map book showing maps and roads in all the different townships or areas in the county to try and figure out where the call was at. Back then, Chisago County didn't have computers in the car, so there was no Google map to direct you to the call. There was no navigation. You had to use a map to figure out where the call was. While we're going to this, it's, you know, this is not the days of the geo-mapping that we have now where you push a button and it pops it up. And, and we're, I remember looking going, man, this Crescent Road, I don't really know where that's at. So you pull up Fish Lake Township, you're looking and you're kind of like, I don't even remember if Crescent Road was in the plat book. I mean, it was, a, it was a new dead end road. With just a short time left in his shift, Tim also heard the call and he was one of the first troopers to head to Harris to help. It's routine for state troopers to assist local law enforcement on calls like this. Actually, routine for any agency to respond. In Minnesota, mutual aid is an agreement between neighboring agencies that establishes a legal basis authorizing other officers and equipment to assist with certain calls. 
At the street level, cops just know when they ask for help, cops will respond from all around to help. Yeah, it's it's really no different than it is today for mutual aid. I mean, they're peace officers and they're licensed and, you know, their their focus is different with state patrol as far as you know, the traffic and highway safety. And, and there, it goes deeper than just traffic. So if we need help, we'll just... We can either hail them on the radio or, or have our dispatchers call them and saying, hey, we need help. And if they're close, they, they'll come and help us. And, you know, in Chisago County, like I said, in the 90s, it wasn't uncommon that the late or early, however you want to look at it, hours, there would be two deputies on for that 444 square miles because a lot of our city cops would go home, you know, at 2 or 3 in the morning as well. So... If they were out there and we needed help, the mutual aid was, hey, we need help, come and help us. And, you know, even today, state patrol or any agency is just so willing to, to help their brothers. And you can't even say blue anymore. You know, the brothers with the badge or brothers, and I say that with brothers and sisters. It, it doesn't matter what color uniform you wear. It's, you know, it, it's a, a family and family helps family. At this time, Deputy Russ Frank, North Branch Police Officer Steve Nelson, and Corporal Ron Butcher were also responding, along with Chris, Bruce, and Sergeant Shodal. These officers also heard Assani County Sheriff's deputies and state troopers were also responding. The first deputies to arrive in the area set up a perimeter at County Road 8 and Crescent Road while they waited for the exact location of the residence. That road that the house is on has houses on, but they're built in the country with trees surrounding them. Trees over, you know, hanging over the road, the road's gravel, and the road has a turn. So in reality, the house ends up being three quarters to a mile away, just about um, at the very end of the dead end road. There, they would decide who would be approaching the residents. Now, back in the late 90s, small rural counties like Chisago didn't have a SWAT team or an entry team or specially trained teams to deal with armed suspects. It would be up to those who arrived first to decide who would approach. Back then, we really didn't have a SWAT team. We had some Kevlar. We had some full-auto weapons. We didn't have a SWAT team like you would have now where you can roll up with an armored vehicle and all the SWAT-type gear that they use. So at the time, we had rifles, 9mm rifles, and shotguns. So the idea was bring two rifles and two shotguns. Part of the reason is shotguns, you can use them at close range, and rifles if you need far. So I remember going back to my car and I grabbed my shotgun and I went in the trunk and I went, you know, this call is not right because we have a guy that shot two people. They're saying the guy's still outside moving around by a vehicle and this guy didn't try to leave after shooting somebody. I just thought, this is wrong. This guy is going to want to have a gunfight. So my sense was, well, I'm going to reach in and grab a handful of slugs and throw them in my shirt in case we ever get pinned down somewhere. I actually have some more long-range firepower, I guess. So at the time, there was only three of us, and then Tim Bull kind of popped up and said, well, I'll, I'll go up there with him. And Tim was part of that Minnesota State Patrol cert team. So it was kind of a SWAT team. So Tim elected to come up with this because he had a M16, which was issued to him when the state got some from the military. So he actually elected to go up with us in the fifth. Sergeant Schodall picked myself, Ron Butcher, who was a corporal, Chris Hendricks, 
And then I just remember while he's looking at, you know, he's going around. I remember Tim Bull kind of coming up and giving Steve a nudge. And he's like, hey, Sarge, you know. He's like, well, I got a rifle, you know. I mean, he's on, he was uh, SRT for State Patrol, you know. So he, we get the four of us. And he said, all right, the four of you, this is your mission. You're going to, you go down this Crescent Road, you got to go find this guy. And we're like, okay, you're, you're the advanced team. And we knew that we had the Calvary. You know, they're all, you know, how cops are. Everybody wants to go, but no, us four, we got picked. You know, he was no longer in the house. He was outside and shooting. And we got to find this guy. Two common challenges law enforcement deals with when they respond to rural calls like this is communication and visibility. These officers were out in the country. They're on a dead-end lake road. Their radios weren't working, and there were no streetlights out there. Well, then we started going, and then our portable radios would not reach dispatch. So we had to talk to Sergeant Schrodel, who we could hear dispatch, but dispatch could not hear us. So when we communicated, I would communicate to Steve. Steve would talk to dispatch. Dispatch was on the phone with the RP still, who would then give it to Sergeant Schrodel, who would give it to us. So now you start going down this dirt road, and uh, it was like canopy covered, you know. It's like you're going down a tunnel, and it's dark. Yeah, it's there's no street lights out here. And it's the canopy. It's like you're going in a tunnel, and it's like, okay. And I remember Chris Hendricks and Tim Bow were on the on the left side, on the north side of the road as we're heading east. Tim had his, his two twenty three rifle. Chris carried a shotgun and a forty five. Ron Butcher had a 9mm camp rifle and a 9mm handgun, and I had a 12-gauge and a 40 caliber handgun. So everybody had different caliber. So at the time we're going down, well, we're creeping down here, and I'll see, you know, and I'm like, all right, hey, uh, we're at we're at this gate. No, no, one more. Oh, okay, so now we're creeping down the road now. When we know Knucklehead's outside, we know that he's armed. We've known that he shot two people, and here we go. And, okay, well, we get to this. Now we're trying to describe a rural driveway in the woods that this is where we're at. You can't see any houses in here at the time. But So then we go down quite a ways. It turns out to be three-quarters of a mile at the end. But when we got to the end, it opens up to this giant field, and now we can see the car sitting in front of the garage. Eventually, they got to a large grassy field where they could see a vehicle lit up by the garage light in front of the garage. It was the suspect vehicle, and Deputy Butcher used his scope on his rifle. He could see that Joe was laying down in the vehicle on the driver's side. As they were approaching, dispatch advised that the victim's condition inside was getting worse, that he needed medical attention. Male number one has been shot in the chest with a 22 caliber. Victim number two, possible minor head wound, but she thinks that at this time is more she's having trouble hearing and some outer burns. Tim and I made an approach across the field, and Bruce and Ron made an approach down the road. So there was a house, garage light, a car with a car door open on the driver's side as we're approaching. I remember seeing a dog that had been shot by this person laying at the, basically at the door of the car and the car door open and loud music playing. But I do remember um, walking across this, this field or yard, all this dried out grass with the garage light on. And I remember looking down at my uniform. I'm like, I could see myself plain as day. This guy's going to see me. No doubt about it. So Tim was off to my left and just slightly ahead of me as we walked 
uh, Bruce and Ron, they approached from the rear of the vehicle. So we had a 90-degree angle or L-shape toward the vehicle as we were walking up the vehicle. At the time, the only visible light was the one in the garage. It was the garage light lighting up the car Joe was sitting in. As they got to within 30 to 40 yards from the vehicle, they saw Joe's feet hit the ground. Joe got up, and then they started seeing the orange muzzle flash as Joe started shooting towards Chris and Tim. What I recall was muzzle flash. I remember I never heard a sound of gunfire. I remember seeing muzzle flash coming my way. So at this time, I don't know if my brain just kind of took over. Like I say, I never remember hearing gunshots. But between Tim and myself and then Ron and Bruce, we started returning fire. I had a shotgun 870 Remington at the time. And Tim had his M16, so Tim and I were returning fire, plus the other guy he were too. Corporal Butcher and Deputy Peterson were approaching the vehicle from the right side, the passenger side, and they started firing on Joe and the vehicle as soon as they saw him shooting towards Chris and Tim's direction. When we got, man, I want to say it was probably about 35, 30, 35 yards from the car, knucklehead dropped down and started firing. Everything for me at that point went to extremely slow motion. I discharged five rounds out of my shotgun. As as I was shooting them, I remember a spark, and I can, I'm can i picturing it right now as we talk. I, I remember a spark going up uh, out of my barrel, and I remember stopping and watching this spark. I'm like, I'm like, wow. And then something came over me that said, hey, you're not done here. I start shooting again. And then to reload, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't transition, but I dropped and I had the nylon sleeve that goes on the stock of your gun. I had that often in my back pocket, my right back pocket. I dropped down and I reloaded and I fired those other five shots. And I want to say I did the pause, watch the spark, reload and fired the other five in the eight seconds. I couldn't, I, I've tried to duplicate that, but I can't do it, not even close. So anyway, when I was reloading, that's when I heard screaming. And I knew it was coming from Tim and Chris. And I was just kind of like, oh, shit. Then you kind of know that you got to, we got to end this. And then it stopped when we stopped. And it was, I just remember things being eerily quiet. There was no sound. Now, mind you, I was told afterwards that some of the buckshot ended up in the horn, so the horn was activated on this car, and there was rap music blaring, and I never heard that the entire time I was out there. Even after. Never heard it. So after we got done, Ron said, I'm going to go to the car. And I said, I got to go check on these guys. And the first one I ran over to and I found was Chris Henry. Shortly into the firefight, Tim turned to me and he said he shot me. And I actually thought I heard you shot me. And I'm like, what? The first one I ran over to and I found was Chris Henry. So I'm like, you okay? And he said, initially, I thought that he said that he shot Tim. And I think Chris thought that. And I'm like, what? Are you okay? And and I looked, and I seen Tim was just a little bit away, and he was groaning, and he was down, and he had his forearm, and I don't remember which one. His forearm was down on the ground, 
and he, you know, he had his head on him. He was hurting, and I went up to him, and I'm like, Tim. And he looked up and he was bleeding on the face and, and he grumbled to what I understood of this this fucking hurts. While they were there checking on Tim, Corporal Ron Butcher checked on Joe. It was obvious Joe was dead. When Bruce sees Tim is down, he calls it in. I get on my portable and I officer down, officer down. Officer down, officer down. Ron, at that time, was up at the car and he goes, no suspect down. And I said, officer down. And I remember Ron standing up on the other side of the car with his portable, and he looks, and I lit him up with my flashlight, and then we screamed officer down. And then from there, I I have a medical background as well. I'm like, okay, we got to put pressure. He's bleeding from his face, and so I'm holding him, and I'm like, oh, my God, all right, get somebody in here. I knew we had the helicopter on standby at Rush City, Um, and then the cavalry came, and for whatever reason, I remember my buddy Russ Frank, who was a deputy, he showed up, and he's running over, and they come with the medical bag, and as soon as, you know, Tim at that point was fading out, and I'm like, nope, 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 this is not happening, this is not happening. And then when I tried to, for whatever reason, once I got surrounded by my friends and partners, I locked up. I, I could not move my fingers to get the oxygen mask to fill. I'm like, what the, you know, I'm like, what the hell? And then one of the medics came and I had some blood on me, obviously, at that point. And they're like, are you shot? And I'm like, I no. Soon, several paramedics and several troopers were now there working on Tim to try and save his life. Troopers, including Dennis O'Brien. We were with the medical people as they were doing their work. I was standing over the top of Tim, holding two IV bags and one in each hand and a flashlight under my arm while Trooper Bruce Brunel was down talking to Tim. He would rip off the names of Denise, Allison, Alana, Colin, and then he started through the names of the people on the SRT team, which Tim was so proud of. And as he spoke, Tim would take and squeeze Bruce's hand at every time. Bruce would just hold on him. And as I stood tethered to Tim by the tubes from the IVs, I never once saw the sparkle leave his eyes. He had a very complacent grin, very comfortable grin. He knew that we were all with, and the sparkle stayed with him. They loaded Tim in the lifelink helicopter, and they left the scene. Now they needed to notify Denise and get her to the hospital. Tim's partner, Trooper Chris Crazier, was the one tasked to go get Denise. I knock at the door. And, you know, when it's at 2 in the morning, you're just like, what? You know, did did Tim forget the garage door? You know, I just didn't even come to mind. And when Chris was standing there, it didn't really, I mean, the worst thought still didn't come into mind. Um... Chris just tried to be, you know, very like, hey, how are you doing? And you probably, I mean, I think we met once or twice before. Uh, So she said, you know, she didn't go into great detail. And so that's probably why it still didn't really come into mind that this was going to be as tragic as it was, other than she was going to take me to the hospital. So I thought, yeah. We'll go to the hospital, see what the situation is, and I'll deal with it then. Because obviously, you know, we went through a lot of different situations, a lot of peaks and valleys with Allison's medical issues. So I just, like, never kind of thought about that. So, but when we got to the hospital, 
there were a lot of officers standing there at the emergency entrance, and I believe might have been the captain. I, you know, this is where some of the things are really blurry. Had mentioned that um, he was gone. The investigation would show that Tim was shot in the face by Joe at a distance of 30 to 35 yards away in the dark. While Joe had been shot several times, according to the coroner's report, the investigation concluded that Joe died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the left temple. You know, the part that bothers me is chicken shit. Took out my, one of my best buddies. And you know how he got hit. It hit the top of his rifle, and then when it hit the rifle, it broke up and went in and took his throat out basically you know it's where he died it's not it wasn't supposed to happen you know it's it's what happened was so unfair and just not okay despite all the efforts from the deputies troopers ambulance crew flight nurses and the doctors and staff in the er about an hour after tim arrived by helicopter to the hennepin medical center he passed away from his injuries. Right, we have some sad news to tell you about, uh, some breaking news this morning. A state trooper shot and killed in the line of duty uh, here in Minnesota. It happened in Chisago County, and uh, we have a crew that's been following that story all night long, and we'll have the very latest for you in just a few moments. With Corporal Tim Bowe, a 15-year state patrol veteran, was the first Minnesota state trooper killed in the line of duty since 1978. Nearly 5,000 people, including 4,000 law enforcement officers, crowded into the Epiphany Catholic Church and spilled onto the grounds for Tim's funeral. You know, it's just, you're watching a family torn apart, um, just for no reason whatsoever. I mean, and I, you looked at them, they'd had enough trauma already, they'd lost, you know, else, and, and, and then to have this happen, and to watch the pain in, in Denise, you know, at the time, I think Colin was maybe six months. He was very young, maybe six months old. And um, she, um, she's a strong woman. And she's, well, she, I, you talk about two very uh, similar people as far as their faith, their strength, their loyalty, and how they can help others through even their trauma. If you're looking at Timmy and you're looking at Denise, there's not many times that there's not a special response team member that hasn't reached out to her. I know, you know she gets flowers a couple times a year, but besides that, just reaching out to her and talking to her or sending her a text, let you know, think about her because it's brutal. And, you know, Colin, Tim's son, has, you know, a shrine um, because he was so young. And, you know, you so you, you, you learn about your, your dad. And to us, you, you know, we told me, you know, your dad was Superman. The pastor described Tim's kindness. Only days before he died, he helped a family whose daughter was killed in a car accident. That family remembers him and how he took time to write a letter to them, offering his prayers and his support. This is the love that allowed him to lay down his life in service of family and friends and of his country. Minnesota Governor Arnie Carlson attended the funeral and spoke. Yes, we shared the laughs, but we also shared the grief. It hurt, and it hurt deeply when Denise and Tim lost their lovely daughter, Allison. I remember early one morning sharing with Tim 
a similar pain that I had when we lost our daughter, Kristen. And we talked and we cried together. That is what families are about. Yes, we have lost a truly remarkable servant. A dear husband, father, son, brother, and friend. And to Denise and to the family, we extend our love and we share in your grief. The fact is, Tim, we all loved you. But there was a special, a very special bond between Tim and my wife, Susan. They were soulmates. They shared the same birthday, and they both had the same sense of quiet reserve and good humor. It seemed that they were able to communicate without saying a word. They instinctively knew. It was last summer at this time when we all shared a trip to Australia. At one point, Susan became enamored with the idea of seeing Sydney from its highest point, a crow's nest on top of the Sydney Harbor Bridge. She inquired of the bridge authority, and they indicated that they would be delighted to escort the governor and his party, but they also made it clear that the governor must be there. I quickly begged off. I had absolutely no desire to climb the tiny metal steps leading to the top of a suspension bridge that I was convinced was shaky to start with. But without saying a word, Susan looked at Tim, he smiled, and off they went. And there they were on top of the bridge, Governor Tim Bowe and First Lady Susan. <laughs> and so if someday you are in a pub in Australia, and you hear someone talking about a gutsy, good-looking governor from Minnesota, you will all know who they are talking about. Tim's family asked Minnesota State Patrol Colonel Mike Shabrias to address Chris, Bruce, and the others who were there when Tim was shot. On behalf of this great family, with their commission and their request, there are some special folks that I want to thank and that they want to thank, who had an extremely traumatic Saturday, one that they will never forget, one that they are struggling with now and will struggle with personally, with all that ha happened those early morning hours. This family has not forgotten you. I will mention your first names only, but to those four Chicago County deputies, Bruce, Chris, Ronald, Steve, quit second-guessing, quit wondering. The family says thank you for doing all that you did on that occasion to attempt to save his life. The colonel awarded Tim the State Patrol's first Medal of Valor and presented the award to Denise. Today, June 11, 1997, I bestow the Minnesota State Patrol's first Medal of Valor posthumously to Corporal Timothy Bowe. Denise, Don, and Ann, we hope that this medal will always remind you and remind us that not only was Tim a great father, husband, and son,
He was our hero who gave his life doing what he loved to do most, serving and protecting the citizens of Minnesota as a member of the Minnesota State Patrol. God bless you, Denise, and your children, your entire family, and God bless the Minnesota State Patrol. Later, hundreds of people stood along the highways and the overpasses, some holding signs or waving flags, as 792 squad cars rolled slowly towards the cemetery near Anoka. The procession took 90 minutes to pass. The thing that really sticks to mind is the long, you know, as you're going to, I don't know how many miles it was from the church to the cemetery, but people lined up alongside the road. I mean, that was just like, I've never, ever encountered anything like that before. And I was just like, wow. He was like the top of the pinnacle. He just like, he was, he set the bar. He set the bar high, and I just uh, miss him every day, love him to death, and still look up to the guy, you know. Tim was buried in the White Earth Indian Reservation next to his daughter, Allison. Besides his wife, Denise, he also left behind six-year-old Alana and nine-month-old son, Colin. On Friday, September 12th, former teammates and coaches from Columbia Heights High School gathered for a special program Friday night during halftime. Governor Carlson was there to talk about Tim's service when he was his driver. Tim's number 22 jersey was retired that night. Not only does the SRT team continue to reach out to Denise and the family each year, they also continue to remember Tim at work. He was just such an amazing person. And then to lose that, your Superman, your your quiet guy that just makes everything okay, um, that was a big hole in our team. But I also looked at how those 15 guys came together, and honestly, God, it's the tightest group of people I've ever worked with in my life. Um, and I miss those. I mean, we that original 15 members on our state patrol special response team were extremely close. And Timmy, there's there's still a shrine that travels with our special response team to this day. It goes to Ripley, it gets set up, his picture gets put on it. It's the first thing that goes up at, at, the, at the start of a day and it's the last thing to come down at night and it's very well taken care of. You know, 4, 489 is gonna live on forever. And uh, he does, uh, does in our hearts every day. And uh, I know that, I know that all the, the original guys, he'll never live in our hearts. And many others, many others. The street partners, the guys that worked day in and day out on the road. Yeah. Tim will always be remembered for the type of man he was. He was committed to his faith, to his family, his marriage, committed to being the best father he could be, and committed to serving his community. The kind of guy that would help you in any way he could. It was that kind of trust that people had in Timbo. He's my hero, my children's hero because he just did what he loved and I just know that they see, you know, there's that legacy. You know, we always want to leave that legacy and I feel like he's done that. Yeah. Tim Bow was a hero. Not because of how he died, but because of how he lived. He believed in service before self. Like 99% of the men and women out there serving day and night, he simply wanted to help people. He wanted to help his 
community, to help make his community a little safer for his family, for his kids, for his friends. It's heroes like Tim that we need to support. These men and women who serve need to see our support through the good and through the bad. It's heroes like Tim that help keep this a noble profession, a noble calling. Heroes like Tim who make an impact on people and families every day he put on the uniform. The overall theme of this story is Tim's legacy of kindness, a legacy that continues to make a difference long after Tim's death. A legacy like that, that's the sign of a true hero. As Dan Lewis said, Tim set the bar high and was a great example to all who serve. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening.